Today's scripture reading is from Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4. If you're using one of the black Bibles that's in the pew in front of you, you can find this on page 689. By the way, if you are using one of those black pew Bibles uh, and you don't have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take that one home with you. It's, it's our gift to you. Really, we get excited every time there's a Bible missing. So please take it home. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and had no hands wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Yahweh gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Yahweh himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, Yahweh's anointed, was captured in their pits. Of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. 
Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. You can be seated as we pray. Our holy God and Father, we ask for your help now. We ask that your spirit would enable us to hate evil as strongly as you do, to love good as strongly as you do, to see the difference within ourselves, and to hope only in you for change. In Jesus' name, amen. How the gold has grown dim. It's deeply sad, isn't it, when something that's beautiful and sacred ends up being filthy and wrecked. We've seen a lot of that here in Lamentations, and this is the second to last chapter. We've been reflecting on God's anger at the sin of those who are called by his name. And here in chapter 4, there's, there's no doubt that the fall of Jerusalem has come from the hand of God. And we see, again, glimpses of how that affects all segments of society in ghastly ways. But maybe you noticed in the scripture reading that the tone of chapter 4 is a little more subdued than in chapters 1 and 2. There's not as much shock at these horrors. It's just kind of a sad, exhausted awe at the extent and the intensity of the destruction. You see, the book of Lamentations serves as a warning, a warning of hell, through events on earth, showing what happens when God's anger burns. And we've seen its relevance for the church because even those who claim God's name aren't exempt from judgment if they persist in using religion as a veil for their actually godless living. We'll revisit some of those thoughts for the church today as we talk about how a failed kingdom resulted from a faulty leadership. That's our outline today. A failed kingdom from faulty leadership. Verses 1 through 11, we'll see mourning a failed kingdom and the rest of the chapter, mourning a faulty leadership that's to blame for it all. The subject of failed leadership among the people of God is, is a very relevant theme for us today, isn't it? Imagine with me, if you will, a pastor who was Ontario born and raised he graduated from what's now Heritage Seminary and was ordained in the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists. Imagine that this pastor joined a church plant that soon grew rapidly until after just seven years they had to move into a giant warehouse that they converted. Imagine that soon this pastor had published 18 books. He had started an award-winning radio Bible teaching program that was featured on 1,100 different stations. Soon the one church became a network of churches with tens of thousands of members. Then came the founding of a Christian academy, the release of worship albums, even a Christian movie studio. But imagine that behind the scenes, things weren't so clean and positive. This pastor had learned the subtle art of raising up leaders who were unquestioning allies and creating a culture of intimidation and lack of transparency in order to get his way. 
He began creatively but legally using church funds to provide expensive gifts for influencers as well as lavish vacations for himself. Eventually came the reports of overt bullying, the strategic defamation of any detractors, and the rage that even vocalized fantasies about orchestrating the ruin or death of others. Eventually, the evidence of self-worship in this man was obvious even to the news media, and the church was forced to fire him. The leaders who remained then scrambled for months to hide their years of covering up for him and their actual inability to do ministry on their own. The whole empire came crashing down as huge numbers left these congregations, never to return, perhaps to any church. Of course, we don't have to imagine these things. They're reality. And we have vivid examples, really, from all over Christianity, don't we, of leaders who have gone amok and taken down whole congregations with them. In one way or another, these shepherds feast themselves on the flock, and they distort the flock's view of truth, and they make the flock ripe for God's judgment. And so it was in 586 B.C. Our text says, The gold has grown dim, and the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Well, this likely refers to the gold of the temple that's now covered in dust and ash, and the stones from the temple complex were now just mingled without distinction among common ruins. So this place, this temple, this city that had been uniquely devoted to God was utterly corrupted and then destroyed by God himself through the Babylonian army. And the repercussions from that would affect every segment of society. In verses 2, verses 7 through 8, we see pictures of young men as well as powerful and rich men, the precious sons of Zion, once compared to fine gold, now are more like pieces of easily shattered baked clay. The princes were brilliant white, either in purity or gleaming with some sort of majesty in their handsome, strong bodies. But now, that brightness has turned to black soot as the skin hangs off their malnourished frames. But even more heart-wrenching is how the conquest and famine have affected women and children. Kids are begging for food, but starving mothers are too cruel to give to them, even more cruel than certain wild animals that are notorious for their lack of care. And verse 10 repeats a scene that we saw first in chapter 2, verse 20. The hands of formerly compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my people. We see that desperation can cause a madness that transforms even the most gentle of people. And it's a sorry state indeed when children not only are dying in their mother's arms, but dying at their mother's hands because the mothers have convinced themselves that it's the only way to survive. No one is exempt from this horror. Verse 5 shows us that even the wealthy are dropping dead on the streets rather than eating chocolate truffles and sitting in luxurious garments. They're now sitting out in the pile where the trash is burned. When Yahweh gives full vent to his anger against evil, one is likely to wish they were dead rather than alive. Verse 6 suggests that Sodom had it easier, with fire and brimstone falling all at once instead of it being a long, drawn-out process. And verse 9 says, 
Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. Now I've moved us through the first half of this chapter fairly quickly because the big point is still ahead of us. But we've seen, as we did in the first two chapters, a failed kingdom, a failed kingdom. And we should pause and ask what it looks like when the church in certain times or certain places has taken on the characteristics of a failed kingdom. This isn't an easy question. It can be hard for us to identify with this level of tragic destruction, but at the very least, we can admit that in failed churches or in formerly Christian societies, life becomes cheap. There's no time, energy, or resources for loving one's neighbor because we're focused on protecting ourselves and our own dignity. Families are devastated. The strong providers and protectors are themselves broken and helpless. Children become mere obstacles or exploitable resources. And all that once felt sacred and beautiful is now just dirty rubble. One almost wishes that the corrupted church in that place would just die already. Its decline and ruin just seem to drag on and on, causing more problems for more people. But aren't the people of God meant to be a light to the nations? Isn't the health of their community and the stability in their lives meant to show the power and the goodness of our God? Yes. But if we aren't truly submitted to God, then God in his mercy won't allow that charade to go on forever. And so it was for ancient Jerusalem. Verse 12. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had withstood some sieges in the past, and the recent kings had beefed up the fortifications, but I don't think that's what the poet's talking about here. Rather, he's just saying that Jerusalem has a, a reputation as a city of the great king, the dwelling of the God of heaven and earth. So over the centuries, even for the pagans in the area, there would have grown an acceptance that this place seemed to be under some sort of divine protection. And we see this dynamic even in our society, where historically there's, there's often been a baseline respect for the sacred, even from unbelievers. But that has a time limit, and the destruction came anyway. When we look back over the first half of the chapter, all the horror, how could this happen? And verse 13 tells us the key to unlocking the whole mystery of how this catastrophe was possible. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Later, the poet mourns the disgrace of the king as well, and the chapter as a whole also speaks of princes and elders. So we see that the failed kingdom results from the way that faulty leadership had provoked God's anger. And the main message of this chapter is that we should mourn. We should mourn and not ignore destructive leadership among the people of God. To mourn is to grieve, to not turn a blind eye, to take in the perversity of it all so that it doesn't have to happen again. Mourn the prophets who have failed. Mourn the priests who have failed. Mourn the kings who have failed. Let me just pause and say that all this talk of, of prophets and priests and kings, it might seem a bit strange to you. 
Well, in the Old Testament times, God gave his people these leaders. And when one leader failed, often another leader was able to get the nation back on track. So, for example, when King David sinned, the prophet Nathan rebuked him and led him to repentance. King Joash repaired the temple when the priests had allowed it to deteriorate. And in the the days of King Uzziah, it was actually the priests who then confronted the king about his wrongheaded worship. These are just a few examples, but you see that the different roles were God's provision for the people. And one of the reasons for the eventual failure of the kingdom was that the prophets, the priests, and the kings had all forsaken divine guidance. Now, these specific offices of prophet, priest, and king, they're not for the church today, but I think you'll see that the functions they served are carried out by church leaders, whether they be pastors or elders or other ministry leaders. And even in ancient times, there was some overlap in their function. So sometimes the priests, well, often the priests taught, and the kings and the prophets would pray for the people, and at various times we could find any of the three leading the community in worship. So first, let's consider how Scripture says that Judah's prophets had failed. The prophets are coupled with the priests here in verse 14 as those who wandered blind through the streets. That's a problem when those who are considered seers can't even see. We read also in chapter 2 that her prophets find no vision from Yahweh. And your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. In short, the prophets had left the people to starve for God's words as well as for food. And we see examples in the book of Jeremiah of false prophets who just straight up lie to the people and they even join in the persecution of the righteous prophet Jeremiah. These false guys like Hananiah and Shemaiah, they just keep telling the people right up until the destructive end, hey, you're okay. God's not displeased with you. You're safe. Don't worry about your idolatry. Don't worry about your adultery. And similarly, in the New Testament, We're told that as the church age draws to a close, people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Do you realize that you can be victimized by false teachers within the church? This could be teaching that expands the law, or it could be teaching that minimizes sin. It could be teaching that satisfies your worldly greed. Or it could be teaching that promises an otherworldly power. It could be teaching that draws attention to the teacher and puffs you up with pride because you are one of his or her disciples. And I want to tell you that it's not only your pastors that you need to watch here. You should be very suspicious of the bestseller rack at your Christian bookstore. If it's insanely popular and seems to say something new and exciting, why not ask an elder about it? Why not search the scriptures together to see if these things are really so? Because in our day of sound bites and philosophical photoshopping, it's not too hard to give a false word from the Lord in return for unjust gain. And the scariest thing is that frequently these would-be Bible teachers, they don't even know that they're doing it. But there's more with the prophets here than just seeing false visions and divining lies. They're charged with having shed the blood of the righteous. It's hard to know whether they were literally part of murder conspiracies or if their desire for wealth 
and influence simply made them culpable. They were blameworthy because they didn't give the warnings they needed to give. Instead, they gave false assurances that led this unsuspecting people to the slaughter. As the Lord warned the prophet Ezekiel, if a righteous person turns and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. But because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. Now please don't understand me as suggesting that there's a direct correlation here to uh, Christian teachers. Certainly none of us carries out our duty as we ought. And the Holy Spirit thankfully keeps convicting us of sin and transforming us and giving us greater courage to proclaim the full counsel of God. But there is still an underlying principle of accountability here. And the New Testament book of James says, Not many of you ought to become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So the takeaway for those who are mourning a failed church, don't trust supposed messengers of God who care more about being liked than about accurately warning you of the pitfalls in your life. Next it says of the prophets and most interestingly of the priests that they were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. This is really ironic because the priests in ancient Israel had the role of maintaining the purity of the people and interceding for them with sacrifice when they had defiled themselves with sin. But these priests, they can't bring cleansing for anyone. They themselves are hopelessly defiled. How? Well, Ezekiel recounts that the priests had done violence to God's law. They had profaned his holy things. They had set up idols in the temple and also built high places to worship false gods and the sun, moon, and stars. They weren't even ashamed when they committed these abominations. It says, they do not know how to blush. Not only did they not atone for the sins of the people, through the sacrifice God had provided, but they even sought to kill the prophet Jeremiah. These priests were truly uncleaned. And perhaps the most memorable example of a contaminated priesthood for us today would be the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day. I mean, they were much the same as those in Jeremiah's day. They were filled with, je- with jealousy, and they labeled the works of God that occurred apart from them as works of the devil. They conspired together to frame Jesus and have him put to death. And when Judas, the disciple who had turned on Jesus, came back to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, they didn't intercede to God for him. No. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he did in the worst of ways. So far from being honored as holy men, priests like these would be driven from their place of rest. They and elders like them would find no honor or favor. Not only God's people will avoid them, but even the nations will not tolerate their presence. And we should mourn over the fact that the same is deservedly said of many Christian clergy today. May God spare our church from any leaders who indulge their own sin and tell a conscience-stricken soul, see to it yourself. 
As for kings, we instinctually know that leaders, like rulers of realms, are responsible for the decline of their own realms, aren't they? In the epic fantasy novel, The Two Towers, Faramir, son of the steward of Gondor, recounts how his ancient kingdom had declined into ruin. He says, The old wisdom and beauty remained long in the realm, and they linger there still. Yet even so, Gondor brought on its own decay, falling by degrees into dotage and thinking that the enemy was asleep, who, only, who was only banished and not destroyed. Death was ever-present because the rulers hungered after endless life unchanging. Kings made tombs more splendid than houses of the living and counted old names in the rolls of their descent dearer than the names of sons. Childless lords sat in aged halls musing on heraldry, in secret chambers, withered men compounded strong elixirs, or in high cold towers asked questions of the stars. And the last king of the line of Inarion had no heir, and now we esteem a warrior as above men of other crafts. Such is the need of our days. Well, the kings of Judah weren't that different from the fictional kings of Gondor. They were concerned more about cornering their personal enemies than they were about defending the people of God from God's enemies. They sought enlightenment from strange idols rather than serving Yahweh who had established the city. They traded the ways of lasting peace for the folly of momentary glory. In 2 Kings, we're told of the last king, Zedekiah, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord just as his fathers had done. And the reason why he was captured in the invader's pit, as it says in verse 20, was that he ran away and he abandoned Jerusalem in its moment of peril. He and his entourage escaped through a break in the wall at night, but they were soon run down by the Babylonian army. King Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered his sons in front of him and then put out Zedekiah's eyes, so that was the last thing he saw, and took him away in chains. Now, rewinding a bit, how had it come to all of this? Well, given the failure of her prophets and priests, the people had sought salvation in military security. The king of Babylon, 11 years earlier, had seized the previous king in Jerusalem and left his brother Zedekiah to rule as a semi-independent vassal king. And he was made to swear by Yahweh to be loyal. Apparently not taking this oath to Yahweh seriously, Zedekiah later foolishly rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and turned to the king of Egypt for help. But that alliance didn't do much. When the armies of Nebuchadnezzar returned to the region in power, Pharaoh turned his armies away. So it says in verse 17, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. We could probably draw parallels to how many Christians in our day are tempted to hope in political alliances and the favor of ungodly leaders who are willing to defend certain Christian values, even if their power means the trampling of other of our convictions. But we church leaders have failed God's people if we teach them to place their hope in the vain help of man instead of humbling ourselves before our God. In the end, the Babylonian soldiers were stalking the very streets of Jerusalem, and they pursued the combatants even to the mountains and the wilderness, 
And as the poet turns to consider the fate of Zedekiah here in Lamentations, note that he seems to become a little more personally involved. He's been describing things throughout the whole chapter in the third person. But now from verse 17 on, he says, Our. He's including himself. And the effect is that you can feel how much it pains him to talk about his own king. He uses veiled terms like the breath of our nostrils, Yahweh's anointed. The Davidic king was like the life breath for the nation. And the grief over his downfall, it's not only about Zedekiah, but the poet grieves the loss of the anointed of the Lord, the one who bore the promise of 2 Samuel 7, where God had established a line of kings that was to last forever. So the poet, he doesn't know how this would play out in Jesus as the son of David. You can imagine how hard it would be for him to swallow it at this time. Because the king neither looked to the law of God nor hoped in the protection of God, he wouldn't be around to enforce that law or to offer the shadow of his protection for the people. We see that the leaders of God's people must lead them by example to hope in God alone and to obey his word. If not, they merely set the community up for judgment. So we see that the judgment of God's people came about because of the wicked and negligent leadership that provoked God's anger. And the appropriate response modeled for us here is to grieve, to mourn, to humble ourselves before God. But that's often not the response that comes. It's not the response that's natural. It's not easy to mourn. It's exhausting. It's not fun. It's much easier to just stop caring. Or it's easier to walk away. Or maybe even to jeer and mock the very community from which you came. Well, thankfully we're not at the end of the chapter yet. We have what seems like these random tag-on two verses about Edom. What's that about? Well, Edom was a small neighboring country that was uh, descended from Esau, Esau the brother of Jacob. And Jacob was also known as Israel. So Israel and Edom were both descended from Abraham and Isaac, the fathers of the faith. But Edom did not hope in the God of Abraham. And they were bitter enemies with Judah. Scripture describes in several places that at the time of the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, the Edomites were, sh- were rejoicing and they were showing contempt to the Hebrews. They were looting wealth from the land. They were even capturing those who were fleeing the invasion and handing them over to the Babylonian army. So these verses are a prophecy of sorts against their pride and their derision, promising that their sins too would be punished in the end. It's sarcasm there in verse 21 when it says, Rejoice and be glad. It's like, celebrate while you can because a leveling is coming your way too. In fact, it gets quite graphic, describing the judgment of God like a cup full of forced intoxicant. And Edom must drink. And when she does, she will pass out of consciousness and others will take advantage of the situation, resulting in the land becoming a horror and a waste. So these outsiders looking in actually have nothing to laugh about. They didn't realize that the same God who judged his corrupted people would certainly go on to judge them as well. See, there's hope for the exiled people of God. Their punishment would end. And in fact, we know that less than 50 years later, the Jews did return to the area 
But soon thereafter, Edom was no more. Now this history may seem secure, um, may seem obscure rather. It's, um, it is an obscure history, but it's instructive for the people of God because when we've been humiliated as a result of the church's sins, how do we respond? In the day of apparent victory for the tormentors and the mockers of God's people, do you cry out to God over the sinful leadership? The sinful leadership that has corrupted the church Mourning, grieving is the response that most of this chapter models. Or do you mock the situation and take the stance of one who's on the outside looking in? Well, if you're tempted to take that approach, to just walk away from the whole circus and fall in line with Edom, think again. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. But that doesn't mean that the others are exempt. Rather, when the church suffers for its own sin, ask yourself, if judgment has begun with God's people, what will be the outcome for the ungodly? There's nowhere to run from a holy God except back to him. So we need to mourn the sins of these leaders, not add to them by playing God ourselves or colluding with his enemies or scoffing at the church or the wreckage left behind. The sight of God's judgment is meant to leave us sobered not arrogant. So, that's Lamentations 4. It's definitely not as hopeful as chapter 3. But that's also because it's just one piece in the big picture. And though it's not explicitly taught in this passage, we know that in the context of the whole Bible, this dreadful lack of leadership, it points us to the true leader who was to come. You see, not all leaders make the people of God ripe for ruin. As one pastor put it, what Jeremiah was looking for was a kind of leadership found only in Jesus Christ. At their best, the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ's coming. At their worst, they showed us why his coming was so necessary. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 speaks of our need of Jesus in this way. Because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect and even the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us as acceptable to God. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God. And so that we can be rescued from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Praise God for the one true leader of our community, Jesus Christ. Plead with him to give us as your elders greater humility and obedience to him. And ask the Holy Spirit to grant this congregation a scripture-saturated discernment that mourns sin early and often, not only when the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Let's pray. Lord, we are deeply troubled by the lack of purity in your church. And we know that you are even more so. So for the sake of your name, raise up holy men and women to act as true servant leaders. We pray that for MABC. We pray that for all the gospel-believing churches in Georgetown. 
We pray that for your church across the globe. In Christ's name, amen.